things. And uh, every time I call David, he answers the phone and says, Hello, Don, what can I do for you? And I don't, I don't know if you understand how powerful that statement is. Because most, when you're the guy most people call to say, I need you to do something for me, to have someone on the other end to just say, what can I do for you today? Uh, and that, and I, sometimes I'll just say, can you listen to me complain for a minute? And he'll go, yes. Um, and, uh, you know, other times I'll say, can you help me with wisdom and wrestle through something? Or other times I'll just say, I, I just want to talk for a minute. Or I don't really need anything. And he's like, well, I'm having coffee with my wife. I'll talk to you later. No, I'm just kidding. Love David and Elaine uh, and the gift that they are, not only to our leadership team, to my wife and I, but to this church. And I think it's unique that our eldership team has decided to teach the church what it looks like to not only uh, have fathers and mothers sit among us, uh, but to financially equip that, support that. And uh, that's really what the apostolic should look like. And uh, thank you so much for receiving them. So let's pray for David. Lord, thank you for this man of God. Thank you for his banner. Thank you, Lord, for the joining of the Lord. Thank you for the word you put in his heart for us today. Ask you, Lord, touch him. Touch us in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Well, it's uh, 24 minutes to 12. Aren't you glad it's not you preaching this morning? <laughs> Rod says, give us a Mennonite sermon. I think he means short. Uh, a friend of mine used to uh, preach in, or at least... Uh, a friend of mine was preaching one day in a church in England about, this about 50 years ago, and they had an old uh, coal stove at the back of this church. And uh, when he began to preach, uh, or just before he began to preach, they put a kettle full of water on it. And he said to the, whoever was responsible, he said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, when it starts to whistle, you're done. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a true story. Uh, let me, um, we, you know, one of the things that I've learned, I hope, in my life is to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And uh, when the Holy, I mean, the Holy Spirit is always with us. If you love the Lord, He's indwelling you. He's always with us. He's always with us in our gatherings together. Um, but there are times when the Holy Spirit, His presence becomes strong. And... Uh, those are times when we need to be prepared to be flexible and to throw our normal way of doing things out the window if we need to, to accommodate what the Holy Spirit is doing. And we see that happening down at Asbury uh, University in Kentucky. One of my uh, old, old friends, uh, Ben Weatherington, is... Uh, we were at Durham together doing PhDs, and he is professor of New Testament at Asbury Seminary and one of the top biblical scholars in this country. And yesterday, and he was, he's been on sabbatical, but when he heard what was happening, he rushed back to be in the meetings, and he said, 
It's God. And whatever God is doing, uh, please pray that it moves across the country because we so desperately need it. So, uh, and you know, it just occurred to me this morning as we were sitting here, Don will know uh, of that old prophet called Bob Jones. And uh, how many of you know Rick Sarver, Don's uh, pastor, and who discipled Don back many years ago? And uh, Bob Jones walked into Rick Sarver's church uh, and, uh, and said, uh, you don't know who I am, but you had a dream last night. And it disturbed Rick yep. because this old man in dungarees walked into his church as he was just about ready to preach. And he interrupted him, but what he said, the problem was what he said was true. He did have a dream last night, but then what happened next was even more astounding because this old man said to him, let me tell you what the dream was. And he told him. And eventually Rick moved with Bob Jones and his wife to North Carolina and spent a number of years there following him. He was uh, an interesting man uh, that had some extraordinary accurate prophetic words. And I, I say all that to throw this out for what it's worth because before he died, and it's the kind of prophecy that I would personally would never give, but then I'm not Bob, I wasn't, I'm not Bob Jones. Um, he said, when the Chiefs win the Super Bowl, revival will break out. That's what he said. And uh, I think a couple years ago, when that happened, people were, that remember the prophetic word, that nothing happened. But you see, he didn't say what time they won it. <laughs> he said when they would win it. Now, that's crackpot, isn't it? Unless you're a football fan. In case it's, um, but God can speak in unusual ways, and God can break out in ways that, like John Wimber said, God will offend the mind to reach the heart. When we learned all of that in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Toronto uh, in the 1990s, where things happened that normally we would have said, that's crazy. We didn't want to be associated with that. But God was there, and the fruit of it was there. Many people's lives were touched. Thousands and thousands of people's lives were touched. So I don't know what God is doing. I hope that we're at the beginning of something significant. Let me tell you this. I was saved in the back end of the last great revival, the Jesus movement, which this movie that Don alluded to is about. And the Jesus movement occurred at a time of social crisis yep, yep. where the traditional values our society was built on were thrown out the window in the 1960s. And I believe in our culture we're at a similar moment now where it's got a lot worse suddenly. But that's great because it's God's opportunity. Because revival often only comes when everything is at its worst. England in 17, I can't remember the exact year, was in a mess. The churches had gone liberal. They weren't preaching the gospel. The, 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 um, 
country was, uh, um, there was a plague of uh, alcoholism and uh, uh, social breakdown, family breakdown, and everything, and the church was nowhere until a man called John Wesley had an encounter with God, and it changed the life of the nation. So, let's just pray that, I guess, whatever God is doing, I want to be in the middle of it. You don't have to travel anywhere to be part of what God is doing. Just get on your knees and pray and seek Him, and let's ask God to do something right here. And I think He is doing something. And when the presence and power of God comes, miracles break out. That's why I'm so um, careful to take note when, like the last two Sundays, there's been miracles of healing. Because God's doing something. You can't manufacture a move of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, where revival is a sovereign work of God. I don't care, and I could go through the history of it, but I obviously haven't got time this morning. But revival, when revival or visitation of God breaks out, it's usually almost always totally unpredictable. It's just sovereign. It happens suddenly. And then our job is to switch gears to be open to whatever it is that God is doing. And that doesn't mean... It's like when we were in the meetings in Toronto and some people would say, oh, we can just worship all the time. We don't need the Word. No. When the Holy Spirit is moving, the hearts of people are open. That's the time to start preaching and teaching. And what I want to talk about this morning is discipleship. It's a culture of discipleship. See, revival isn't people running around and going to meetings and having experiences, and that's the end of it. Revival is changed lives where people become true followers of Jesus because we want a visitation or a move of the Holy Spirit which changes people's lives permanently, right? That's what we want. So, I better get to it. I'll be just as quick as I can with, as I possibly can with this. Uh, I've already lost about, well, anyway, I'm not even going to count time. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22. And it's going to come up on the screen. It'll have to come up on the screen because I haven't got my Bible with me and I need to read it. Thank you. There. Amazing. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. There you go. Another great seeker-sensitive moment in the life of Jesus. Now, in the opening chapters of his gospel, Matthew lays out a clear distinction between two different groups. There was the large crowds who appeared wherever Jesus was, 
but there was also the smaller band of disciples who traveled with him. Remember how he called four men, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He called them to leave everything behind and follow him. But as soon as that account is recorded, the very next verses speak about great crowds that mobbed Jesus wherever he went. And when we come to chapter 5, Jesus sees the crowds coming after him, but what he does is he goes up into the hills, and there the small band of disciples come to him. And in the absence of the crowds, he teaches them what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And then as soon as he comes down from the mountain, the crowds were waiting for him. Now, and God began to move. When Jesus was in a large group of people with those crowds, miracles started to happen. But listen to the difference. He healed the crowds, but he taught the disciples. Two different things. Nor is it suggested in the Gospels that Jesus made the same demands of the crowds that he made of his disciples. Nor is it suggested that the crowds left everything behind and followed Jesus all over the country. They were local people who appeared wherever Jesus was, then they went back to their ordinary lives. Jesus' strategy was never to focus on the large numbers, but always to work with a small number whom he discipled to reach the large numbers. Why is it in church today so often we see the opposite? We love to create big churches where many are entertained, but few are equipped. People come and go untrained, untaught, undiscipled. Some of you probably have been in churches like that. Instead, we should be working with small groups of disciples, teaching and training them to create spiritual families who will go out, plant churches, and create more disciples. Crowds can disperse in a minute. Families last for a lifetime. Recently, a young man planning a church in Phoenix poured out his heart to me. He had gone everywhere to different church planning organizations looking for help. Somebody mentor me. How do I do this? Every single church planning ministry he talked to had the same basic method. We'll show you techniques to get more people in your door. We'll fund you, but if you don't get to 250 people in two years, you're out. That's it. That's the definition of success. Nothing about teaching, nothing about discipleship, nothing about pastoral care, just gimmicks to get people in the door. And he walked away and he said, there's got to be more than this. Well, let me tell you something. Jesus never built his church on the crowds. He built it on the disciples. He didn't study the demographics and create a trendy brand. No, he said this. He said, you're Peter. On this rock, I'll build my church. He spent three years investing in a very imperfect guy who even after all that only ever seemed to open his mouth to change feet. But that was Jesus' strategy. 
Yes, we can reach out to the crowds with signs and wonders the same day Jesus did, the same way Jesus did, if we happen to move in signs and wonders the same way he did. But even if we did, even if we had that success, the crowds that we would reach would never form the foundation of our church any more than they formed the foundation of Jesus' church. At best, crowds are a fishing pond out of which we draw disciples. Jesus reached out to the crowds in compassion, but he chose to build his church on the much smaller foundation of those who are willing to give up everything to follow him. And we should do the same. In the dark days after Jesus' crucifixion, did you notice that the crowds had disappeared? The 5,000 men plus women and children, the 4,000 on another occasion, the crowds that so pressed in on the shore, Jesus had to get into a boat to teach them. Where were they? Gone. Nowhere. But the family, the family, with just one exception, remained. And it was on the foundation of that family, that group of 120 people, that at Pentecost, Jesus built his church. The same Peter everybody else would have given up on was standing in front of all Jerusalem putting his life on the line for the one conviction that a man others said was dead was actually alive. And on the foundation of Peter's testimony, <clears throat> thousands were added in one day, many more thousands in the days following. In fact, more disciples and potential disciples than Jesus himself had ever won. Why? Because Jesus had invested in building disciples. He built his church on the disciples, not on the crowd. Investing in the few rather than chasing the crowds looked like a dumb strategy for Jesus, but in the end, he was proven right. Jesus was never tempted to play the numbers game. When we come to the beginning of this passage here in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew tells us as soon as Jesus saw the large crowds gathering, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Isn't that interesting? I wonder how many uh, preachers today would make the choice Jesus did. When they saw the crowds coming, you'd open the doors and say, come on in, we'll take an offering up before we do anything else. <laughs> but Jesus said, no, let's, let's leave. This will ruin what I'm trying to do. See, it's so counter-cultural to the way that so many churches operate. A friend of mine called me one day and said, after COVID, and said, you know, I'm in a predicament. Our church has gone from 3,000 before COVID to 750. What am I supposed to do? He was very discouraged. And I said to him, let me ask you a question, to which I knew the answer. I didn't have to be a prophet either to know the answer. I said, let me ask you a question. I said, what are your offerings like? And he said, you know, that's a strange thing. You know what I'm going to say, don't you? He said, the offerings haven't changed. I said to him, dressed him by name, and I said, you know, I said, you, you didn't have a church. You had a crowd. 
Now maybe you have a church. I said, how are you supposed to disciple 3,000 people? Another church in the same city, a major city in this country, another church crashed and burned very suddenly. And the next Sunday, 1,000 people from that church walked in his door. How are you supposed to disciple a 1,000 people that just walk in the door? You can't. So God did a Gideon, right? Because we don't build our church on the crowds, but on disciples. So I said, God's, do you think God's brought it down to the number where you might be able to disciple them? And he said, you know, that's a completely different way of looking at it. Yes, and he started to get encouraged. See, isn't that Jesus didn't care for people or want to reach them? Of course he did. But, but see, he knew in the long run, the way to reach the most people was by establishing a base of committed disciples who would multiply his ministry in the world once he was gone. Otherwise, all they would have been left with after Jesus' death was the memory of a massive signs and wonders movement based on the ministry of a man who wasn't with them anymore. Successful Christian leaders are always training others for the day they will no longer be there. Why do you think Don holds discipleship class? Why do you think he is training young men? Why do you think there's an eldership team? John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Wesley, they all did that. They left movements behind them that changed the world. On the other hand, how many times have we seen large churches disappear almost overnight when one founding pastor personality has a moral problem or an addiction problem? He's gone, and next week the church is gone with him. What happened? We work with a couple of churches in different countries that had that experience. Because the church was built on the wrong foundations. The foundation of accumulating a crowd, not making disciples. We have lots of church leaders who are CEOs or platform personalities, but not enough that are fathers. We need fathers and mothers. We're surprised that church leaders, pastors, prominent pastors, leave no sons and daughters behind. Well, if they're not being fathers and mothers, there won't be any sons and daughters. Anyway, Jesus here had ordered his disciples to go with him to the other side of the lake. On the other side of the lake was the Decapolis. That was a non-Jewish area. If you read a few verses down, you'll notice um, where Jesus encountered a lot of pigs. So if he'd wanted to turn off all those Jewish crowds, it was a great way of doing it. He was making sure the crowds wouldn't follow. Now, Jesus had no difficulty ordering his disciples around because disciples are not some kind of fan club. The crowd was the fan club Jesus was fleeing from. The crowds came for their needs to be met. Once they'd had their free loaves and fishes, they were gone. How often do we come to Jesus for what he can give us, not what we can give him? (laughs) But the disciples, they had no home to go back to. They had no business to go back to. They burned their bridges behind them. Disciples are men and women committed to obey. Discipleship is unconditional. 
You put your hand at the plow and you don't look back. Disciples don't tell God when or how they want to serve him or what they expect in return. Disciples follow Jesus whether it suits their preferences or not. So the question I have to ask myself right now is this, am I a disciple? And I'd invite you to ask the same question. Are you a disciple? Or are you just another part of the crowd? If you've been around here for any length of time, you'll understand this teaching is almost unnecessary, except we always need to be reminded every so often. But if you haven't been around here for that long, maybe you need to hear what I'm saying. Are you a disciple, or have you wandered from church to church, and most of the time you've just been part of the crowd? You can have excitement with a crowd, but if you want to extend the kingdom of God, you need disciples. So, Jesus gets met in this story by two men who want to join his small band of disciples. The first man is described in verse 19 as a scribe. And he says, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. He addressed Jesus as rabbi. Now, the scribes had a different concept of discipleship than Jesus did. The scribes and the Pharisees in the day uh, that Jesus lived believed that if you wanted to be a disciple of a rabbi, you decide which rabbi you want to follow. You go around and pick one that suits your fancy and gives you what you're going to want, but you don't have to make any personal commitment. If he starts saying something you don't like anymore, gets too challenging, whatever, then you can leave. No rabbi tells you what to do. And uh, to be honest, it sounds like the way a lot of churches operate. <laughs> Forgive me, but uh, you, you, you go into church, and it's fine while the preacher is tickling your fancy, but as soon as he says something that touches an area of sin or disobedience in your heart, you're offended and out of here. And then you go to the next church until the same thing happens. Eventually, you find a church where no one challenges you for anything, and they hardly even preach the gospel anymore, and you just sit there and die. But Jesus had a different approach. And if you didn't know some of the historical background, you wouldn't realize it because we only have the gospels to go by. Jesus chose his disciples, right? We... He went to Peter, he went to James, Andrew, John, and the others, and he said, follow me. That was revolutionary. No other rabbi or teacher in Israel did that. The people decided, I'll follow him, or I'll follow them, or I'll follow the next guy. And the teacher just sat there giving out platitudes with no actual demand on anybody's life. But Jesus turned it around and said, you actually can't be a disciple unless I choose you. But if I choose you, you better be ready for the ride of your life. Because you're in this to suit my agenda, not yours. You don't come to church to have your needs met. You come to church to follow Jesus, be taught, discipled, and sent out according to his plan, not yours. But if you do that, you will have your needs met. 
So the scribe, now a scribe was a prestigious person. Jesus should have been looking for, you know, prestigious people to follow him. And the scribe says, well, I'll follow you wherever I go. Big words. Jesus says, boxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The scribe's own words revealed his perception. He didn't really understand the cost of discipleship. And after Jesus challenged him, he had nothing to say. You can be sure he quickly left the room. Really, what he was saying was, I'll follow you wherever I want to go, but I'm not following you where you want me to go. (laughs) It's hard being a Christian sometimes. Whoever told you it was easy was preaching a false gospel. You should have got the hint when he says, pick up your cross and follow me. We find so many ways to complain about church, don't we? Man, I didn't like Don's cologne this morning. I'm out of here. You know? I mean, Lisa walked right past me. No, there was 500 people in the building, but she walked right past me and never even stopped and asked how I was doing this week. Well, how insensitive is that? You know? (laughs) I know. That's an extreme example, but actually, it happens. Well... You know, I had this situation and everyone didn't run to my rescue. You, you don't know what other needs were being cared for. But you have a sense of entitlement. We look at our whole culture. It seems to be built in a sense of entitlement, doesn't it? Gee, when my dad was 19 years old, war broke out and he didn't have any entitlement. He signed up seven years in the Royal Air Force, being shipped off from this place to that. When he got married, he had like a week's leave. When my older brother was born, he had another week's leave, sitting in a, uh, under the stairs in my grandparents' house with my mom in one arm and the ba- my older brother as a baby in his other arm, singing hymns to her while the German bombs fell and killed some of their neighbors. It wasn't a day for entitlement. You say, well, we're not at war anymore. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. You, You look around us and think we're not at war? You look around what's happening and you think we're not at war? What's the answer? The answer is people who are ready to follow, to lay their lives down. And you know what? Every one of you has something to offer. Someone came up to me at the beginning, one of the brothers, I can't remember, there's two or three people came up to me at the beginning um, with prophetic insight, and one of them had to do with the bride and the groom being reunited. I think that's, it's discipleship. Jesus is the bride, we're the bride, Jesus is the groom. Discipleship is the way we're reunited, Right? And another person had a word about shame. And let me tell you, we all have reasons to have shame in our life. But Jesus came to take the shame off. Don't allow shame in your own life 
to be a disqualifier for being a disciple. God does use imperfect people. The only perfect people, only perfect preachers that I know are me and Don. And I wonder about Don sometimes. <laughs> God will use you even if you're imperfect. But he will not use you if you have a sense of entitlement. If you're here in church today, for what you can get out of it, because you were offended at the preacher at the last church, or the worship wasn't good enough, and you're looking for a better experience here, well, all I can say is the exits are well lit. Because you will get offended and leave here at some point. God has to touch your heart so that you come with what you can give. You know, and if you come and look around, who can I encourage today? You may come discouraged. There may be problems in your life. There's somebody here who's in a worse place than you. Find them and encourage them. And see, what, see how God lifts your heart and lifts your spirit. We're disciples. God's church is not built on people who come in and set the terms of discipleship. What kind of town or city they want to live in? What kind of school they want to be near to? What kind of church building they like? What kind of preaching tickles their fancy? What type of music? Whether it's loud or not loud. Too loud or not loud enough. What kind of children's programs? What's in it for me? That's not what church is built on. God's church is built on people who are called to serve Jesus and follow him by laying down their lives without regard for what they want or get in return. I know it's a hard word. I know it's a hard word. But there is blessing at the other end of it. Well, I've got to finish this, but there's, there's the second guy comes along. This, the second guy is actually described in the text as a disciple. I don't know how he got into the group. Maybe he followed Jesus around for a while, taken in the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe he liked good teaching. Maybe he enjoyed the miracles. I don't know. But as long as he was having a good time and nobody challenged him too much, he was committed. But now, wait a minute, wait a minute, something happens. He has to attend to some other business. He needs a leave of absence. <laughs> You know, people come to you. You ever had someone come to you? I know you have. Uh, Pastor, I need a leave of absence right now. There's pressures in my life. I'm going to take a break, a break from church. Hmm. That would never have happened to you. Well, that was this guy. Oh, I need a timeout. Uh, let me first go and bury my father. Now, that doesn't mean his father had just died and Jesus was forbidding him to attend the funeral. No, because according to Jewish law, burial had to take place within 24 hours of death. If the father had really just died, the son wouldn't have even been there. He would have been in the burial service. But, but actually, the phrase doesn't mean that. To bury one's father was a Jewish expression meaning to fulfill a son's duty to look after his father for the rest of his life. It's as if... Don said, to heck with Firm Foundation Ministries, my dad down in Florida needs me. And I'm just moving down there for the rest of his life to look after him. And, and that's a hard thing. And Elaine and I know what it's like too. We, we have responsibilities to family. And sometimes we can't do everything we would like 
for family, like what you would like to do for your dad, but the call of God says otherwise, and we just have to trust our family to him. Well, this man wanted to be a disciple, but later. He had his own priorities to follow first. He was happy to be committed until he had to be committed more than was convenient. Sometimes we think that after we've looked after our own affairs, provided for our family, raised our children, finished our career, obtained a great pension, have lots of spare time, then we'll serve the Lord. No, no. Discipleship is now when it's inconvenient. Either you follow him or you don't follow him. All other priorities in life must be rearranged around the demands of God's kingdom. That doesn't mean we abandon our other responsibilities. It just means all of our legitimate responsibilities in life must be understood in light of our commitment to Jesus. We're to care for our children, but that care can't be an excuse for failing to do what God requires. We're to provide for our family, but that provision is not an end in itself. We're to work hard, but money is not an idol. The time to serve Jesus, folks, and follow him is now. Let me give you the wisdom of experience. People who say they'll follow later never follow at all. So to finish off, does that mean Jesus didn't care about crowds and numbers? No. He laid his life down for every single one of us. God's desire is that all should be saved. And if not all, at least as many as possible. But what it does mean is the way to reaching the many is through disciples, not hangers-on. A mega church which is built on the preacher's personality or the professional qualifications of the worship leader or the Italian marble in the men's room will produce commitment a mile wide and an inch deep. And the church will disappear along with the preacher, the worship leader, and the beautiful marble in the men's room. But a small church which produces disciples, will send those disciples out to change nations. If we don't preach discipleship, it's probably because we don't want to pay the cost. But let me suggest this. The price is worth paying. And I'll tell you why, for one reason alone. Discipleship is the only way to draw close to Jesus. The crowds were at the fringe of the meetings. The disciples were at the heart. When the presence and power of God comes, I want to be at the back of the room or outside the door trying to get in. I want to be at the front where God is moving. Do you want to be the one close enough when you're in need to touch the hem of his garment? Do you want to be close enough for Jesus to touch you? There's a simple answer. Become a disciple. You'll never regret it. Let's stand together. It's quarter past 12, and I want to release you and release the...
kids and the Sunday school teachers. If you want to uh, get something right with God, you can do it sitting in your seat right now or at this, after the end of the service. You can come up to the front. You can make an appointment and ask to talk to somebody. You can do whatever you want because God's available for you. However you do it, let me just encourage you this morning to be a disciple. Reevaluate what you're in it for. Church is not a corporate experience or a concert. Church is a family. Family works when we all pitch in whatever we have to give because everybody has something to give. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for your grace. You have brought all of us in this room, those that aren't here this morning, those that are watching online. You brought all of us into this family for a reason. The reason is certainly to encounter you, but the reason is also to be discipled. And Holy Spirit, you are the best discipler of all. You convict us of sin. You encourage us. You comfort us. You give us gifts to give to other people. All these things are part of being a disciple. Thank you for the privilege of being associated with a church like this. And Father, I pray for all my brothers and sisters here that they may realize the privilege it is to be part of a church like this where discipleship is not tolerated, it's cultivated. So we offer our hearts to you this morning, Lord. We may be like the young boy that only had the loaves and fishes, or we may feel that way, but everything we have is significant to give, and we lay it at your feet. Most of all, Lord, we lay our lives. Thank you, Father. Thank you.